It's hard to accept that sometimes people leave. We can love them the best we know how, make them happy, make them feel wanted, make them feel safe. But in the end, despite our best efforts, they leave anyway. And in the wake of their departure, we feel hollow, empty. This feeling, it's not unlike hunger. Anything empty wants to be full. What if, however, there was a way to make sure they never leave? A way to transfer part of them to you, to make forever out of for now, and to make empty full. It is often said that there is a fine line between infatuation and obsession. The object of our affection can consume us, blocking out everything else in our lives and holding our happiness in the palm of its hands. It's a helpless state to be in. Helpless and hopeful are often bedfellows and can lead to our inevitable heartbreak. But what if, instead of allowing this person to consume us, we take the matter into our own hands, we seize control where we once had none, we turn the tables and we consume them. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we We would would be be dead. I can hear the music in my head all the time. I know. <laughs> we always do a little dance after that because we can both hear it happening. Yeah. <laughs> Even though we do not play it here. We do not. That is added later. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. And welcome to part one of two of our investigation of the Milwaukee cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, yeah. Man. It's our first really big serial killer. Oh, I know. I'm excited. Right? It's very exciting. I kind of feel like it's a measure of success because we weren't like, we were like, we're not going to do a really big one until like somebody is listening. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So so thank you to all you somebodies who are listening. (laughs) We appreciate you all. Dahmer has been an introductory case into the world of true crime for many of us. So I hope you guys learn a couple of new things on this wild ride and uh, that we're about to all go on together. Before we kick it all off, let's get our business out of the way. And we really don't have much this week. We covered most of it. Uh, Patrons, keep your eye on your email tomorrow for details on our upcoming trip. So we will send out like an email blast to them covering all our stuff. Non-patrons, come be patrons. (laughs) Duh. Obviously. It's fun. Thanks to everyone who joined us on Friday night for live Campfire Stories, the Two Truths and a Lie edition. That was such a fun night. I had, I enjoyed it. I did too. <laughs> that is all that matters. <laughs> <Is> it? <laughs> <laughs> and I like started thinking about how that has possibilities for like a live and in-person show at some oh, point. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, when we're safe. Yes. And we're allowed, but I think that that would be really, really fun. We have enough patrons to safely fill a room. <laughs> 
That's true. Patrons only. Maybe you get a live gathering of two truths and a lie. If you think any of this is a cool idea, please let us know because I would love to do this in front of a live audience when we are allowed to, even if it's a very small live audience. But like, we just love validation. So. Yeah. <laughs> And speaking of validation, if you have not done so already, please pop on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. I'm starting to feel empty and sad. Mm, I'm on my last baby's blood. <laughs> we got to find more babies. I guess so. <laughs> and I really won't, don't want to have to eat any of you. So, you know. And with that, onto a guy who really did eat some people. Oh, man. You like my segue? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm so good at transitions. Oh, God. <laughs> Let's talk about Jeffrey Dahmer. I have always been particularly fascinated with Dahmer because in interviews, he seems so likable. I have watched him talk so much this week and his parents, and it's like hard to connect him to crimes that are so far beyond the pale that most people can't even conceive of them as happening in real life. Dahmer is like horror movie villain worthy. It doesn't even seem, it just doesn't even seem real to me. Right. The shit that he did. But of course that isn't true. He, it was real. (laughs) I mean, obviously. It just seems so extreme. Anyway, Jeff, as he preferred to be called, was a very real guy and he killed very real people. And I'd like to, remove the boogeyman factor from this story and really try to concentrate on the reality of it. There's a reason, I don't know if anyone has noticed, probably not, probably just me, but I do make this a conscious choice. There's a reason that I choose to use first names when referring to killers instead of the traditional last name, because it's too easy to make characters fictional when we don't. I agree with you on that. Great. Thank you. I just think it's like if you are talking about Dahmer, he's a terrifying supervillain. But if you're talking about Jeff, Jeff is a guy you see at the grocery store. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And the second is a lot scarier and a lot closer to the truth. Right. I also, so I played a lot of sports and we always used each other's last names as like nicknames mm-hmm. to be cool. Got it. Know? So I don't know. I, I think just using his first name kind of takes any cool factor away from him also. Yeah. I agree. I think they're like two sides of the same coin. Yeah. It's not making him out to be this like big deal comic book Mm -hmm. villain type character. It's like, no, he was a guy who did awful stuff. Right. And we kind of need to put the humanity back in it to really, really understand the situation as it happened. Right. So. Well, I'm excited for this because I know what Jeff did. Oh, Jeff. But (laughs) I don't. I don't know anything about him at all. Like, I don't, I never watched a documentary. I never got into it. It was one of those things where I felt like everyone knew what he had done. Right. And I was like, oh, yeah, me too. Me too. You know, where you just didn't want to be the person Uh that hasn't watched that movie, like Shawshank Redemption. Jesus. You just say you watched it. Men in the Shawshank Redemption, they will always (laughs) turn it on, they will always cry, and they will always have to watch all of it. I've been Shawshanked. It's the worst. <laughs> if it comes on, Will's like, I'm in. Yeah. God damn it. I gotta go. Um, anyway, we just got Shawshanked in that conversation. We sure did. Um, but yeah, for further information, it I mean it's everywhere, you guys. Like it's not it's not hard to find. 
GIF info. There is a Netflix documentary wherein they talk to a lot of his neighbors and stuff, and it mm. is haunting. Not a lot of things are real difficult for me to get through, but that was one of the ones where I was like, oh, God. Mm. And I, like, had to take a break in the middle of it. Oh, wow. I know, and it's hard to do that to me. So. Yeah. So especially about a case that I already knew about. But that's a good one. I'll find the exact title of that and, and make sure at some point I, I put it in the show notes or something so that you guys can find it. All of his interviews, there's like an hour and a half long interview with Stone Phillips that you can find online that I will link in the show notes. Um, <laughs> something that I frequently forget, and I don't know if anybody else does, he was arrested in the early 90s. It was not that long ago. All the mediums that we know and love, you know, like TV and, well, not obviously not like social media and stuff, but everything was around then. So he talked to a lot of people, personally. Right. Wow. I know. Doesn't it feel like it should be something that happened so very long ago? It is not. We were both well alive. I mean, maybe that's why he, to me, is such a familiar right. uh, serial killer, and but that I wouldn't have known, like my parents obviously wouldn't have told me much because I would have just been a little kid so maybe right. I just was like oh I know him and just never felt the need to look into him too much yeah it just blows my mind later. that I was alive when that happened because I have no yeah. real recollection of it obviously we were kids we wouldn't but mm-hmm. I'm like god 1991 really yeah. I mean I like was that's four huh. I was <laughs> 10 so I wasn't aware mm-hmm. well I was nine or 10 depending on yeah but we still at that same age we still wouldn't have I mean I definitely wouldn't have you might have known you might I mean have not, the news name. was on in my house for sure yeah. but I don't remember I mean like Bundy's the same thing Bundy's always much later than I anticipate him yeah. being it's just a weird thing and if you guys feel the same way you can uh, we can talk about that yeah <laughs> can let me know if the modernity of it freaks you out mm. but anywho let's get into it On the evening of July 22nd, 1991, Milwaukee, Wisconsin police officers Rolf Mueller and Robert Routh were on their patrol when, out of nowhere, they saw a man flagging down their car. He was running at them at full speed with terror in his eyes and handcuffs dangling from one of his wrists. Well, this night just got interesting, the officers undoubtedly thought. The man was Tracy Edwards, and he told officers Routh and Mueller that he had just escaped the apartment of a madman who had tried to murder him. The man's name was Jeff. He was tall and blonde, and they met earlier that evening at a bar. Tracy had agreed to go home with Jeff, and that's where things took a turn. He had handcuffed Tracy and threatened to kill him with a knife. Tracy said he had underwent a five-hour ordeal in the apartment and somehow managed to fight his way out of the situation and run screaming into the night. Hot damn. I know. Naturally, the officers raised a bit of an eyebrow. And we're not even going to get into the fact that Tracy Edwards is a black man, and perhaps that's why the officers did not react with the urgency that they could have were he not. But at this point in the story, that's not what we're going to focus on because the police did do their job. And these officers were traumatized until their brains were basically rice pudding by what they would just see in a couple moments' time. The officers can't take off his handcuffs as the keys they have don't fit it. And this fact is in every single retelling. Why would they think their keys would unlock other handcuffs? Do you think that there's like a master key to handcuffs? Maybe all police handcuffs, which feels dumb because like if anybody could steal it, they'd be like a master criminal. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I mean, if we have any officers out there in our listenership who want to tell us about universal keys to handcuffs, fine. But that's still also a pair of handcuffs someone had in their home. Why would you assume like, oh, my keys work on this? I, I mean, I would have, I would have tried. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could always try, right? You yeah. never know. That's fine. But it, it didn't work. And and Tracy had mentioned to them that the keys to those particular handcuffs were in that guy, Jeff, who got him his bedroom. So officers Routh and Mueller asked Tracy if he will take them back to this guy's apartment as they would clearly like to question him and maybe arrest him. An added bonus, they could get those pesky handcuffs off him. Mm-hmm. Everybody wins. So Tracy agrees and accompanies the officers back to 924 North 25th Street where they enter the Oxford apartment building and walked to apartment 213. If you are a um, murder tourist, that building has been knocked down. So you can't go there. And it was knocked down because of this. So (laughs) the officers knocked on the door of apartment 213 and Jeff answered casually. He was exactly as Tracy had described. So, so far the story totally checks out. Jeff was, as always, very polite and told the cops that, yes, he was responsible for the handcuffs. Jeff let the officers in, and they started questioning him in the living room of his apartment. The apartment was pretty normal at first glance. Walking through the front door, you entered a living room area with a couch, um, a large black side table that housed a big fish tank. The walls of the house had a lot of framed artwork, all of which are naked and muscular male torsos. Weird. Yes and no, because they are framed and they're clearly like art. They're not, they don't look like porn or anything. I want to like, I'll I'll post pictures of his apartment this week so you guys can kind of get none of the crime scene stuff yet, but like just his apartment. So you can kind of get a sense of what I'm talking about. There was a lava lamp on one of the side tables and some empty beer cans strewn around. It really just looked like a messy bachelor lived there. Nothing too alarming. Jeff answered a few questions, posing the whole thing as a misunderstanding. They were messing around, and it got out of hand, and he didn't mean to hurt him. At which point, Officer Mueller starts off towards Jeff's bedroom. He remembered that Tracy had told them they could find the keys to the cuffs in there, along with the large knife that Jeff had tried to kill him with. Jeff, seeing Officer Mueller heading off that way, tries to cut him off at the pass, offering to retrieve the keys himself, but... Officer Routh quickly caught him by the shoulder and told him to back off. Back off. Back off, man. Yeah. And after that moment, none of the men in that apartment would ever be the same again. Mm. (laughs) Officer Mueller walked into the bedroom and immediately sensed that some weird shit was going on there. (laughs) Now you just get a, like a bad feeling. Yeah. That's what I mean. Funny feeling inside. Yes. He remembered that Tracy had told him the knife would most likely be under the bed. And indeed it was. It was exactly where he said, just as he said it. Officer Mueller then noticed that the top drawer of Jeff's dresser was laying open. And he decided to take a look. Inside it were Polaroids. Over 70 to be precise. And they were all of men. Dead men. Dead naked men. In various states of dismemberment. Officer Mueller blanched gathered a few of them, and walked out into the living room. He approached his partner, showing him the Polaroids, and quietly stating, these are for real. At this point, Jeff knew that this did not end well for him, and he started to try and flee the apartment and fight the officers, but they overpowered him, two against one, cuffing his hands behind his back. They then call for backup, knowing that this situation was more than they expected. (laughs) 
Officer Routh started to look around a little more, and he walked into the kitchen, which was sparse but also somehow messy. Again, like, I'll, I'll post pictures of it. There was, like, a standard apartment kitchen, cabinets, like, a lug, not a lot of counter space, a little stove, a little fridge with a freezer on top. And then, plugged in over by the counters was an additional standing freezer, mm-hmm. which is clearly, like, it's not standard issue. That's something you bought and put in there. And every murderer really should equip themselves with one of those. I mean, if you're serious about the job, you buy the stuff. So. Yeah, absolutely. We did. We sure did. Podcasting equipment, that is. I Not murder equipment. Clarify. <laughs> <laughs> we have microphones and like sound absorbing things, not um, standing freezers. <laughs> Officer Routh opened the standard issue apartment refrigerator to find on the bottom shelf a freshly severed head staring back at him, a pair of hands. And a penis. And then on the above shelves, various other cuts of human tenderloin wrapped in plastic. Like, they came from the butcher. I told you they would never be the same again. Looking around the kitchen, it became clear that Jeff just didn't have these guys for dinner. He had these guys for dinner. All in all, detectives would go on to remove 11 bodies from Jeff's house that night, which included two full skeletons, like articulated and hanging, like they belonged in a museum or something. And that shit's not easy. Also, seven bleached skulls uh, and all the parts that he had stored in the fridge and freezer, a mummified human scalp, and three torsos breaking down in a blue barrel of muriatic acid. I think that's how you spell it. I think it's how you pronounce the name, Murrieta. It's a different kind of acid than I have ever heard in any other case. But Jeff kept this barrel, this disgusting blue barrel, in his bedroom. We will go into even greater detail about Jeff's apartment and everything that was recovered in episode two. But that just lets you know right away what we are dealing with. Wow, in his bedroom. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, he killed them on his bed. So. Easy disposal. There's like a yeah. picture of, of his bedroom and it's, it is wild because the bed is up against like a corner. So the head, headboard area is against one wall and then it's pressed up against the sidewall. And the whole area that would be a headboard is just a crescent of blood. It's just obvious that people had been bleeding there a lot. I don't, I don't know how he got so many men to like agree to be in that room. Maybe if the lights were off. Yeah, I I mean, maybe there was a headboard that they took off or something, but it's, like, nuts looking. Um, And the barrel's in, like, the corner over by the closet just sitting there. And actually, like, he had had reports by his neighbors that his apartment smelled. Mm. And once he said it was because his freezer had had gotten unplugged somehow and he didn't know it and everything spoiled. So that's what smelled. And then another time he said that his giant fish tank – had like the filter stopped working and everything like went gross. So he's had a reason, but right. like people definitely were like, it's gross in there. Ooh. So yeah, that's fun. And while it may be important to know Jeff's history and understand that there was a point in time where he was somebody's beloved baby, somebody's weird friend, and the misunderstood class clown, you have to have this image in the back of your mind. We need to be empathetic always, but that only goes so far. Mm-hmm. After that universal haunted house of a discovery, Jeff was taken in and immediately confessed. 
Right away. He was super casual and was just like, oh, well, here's everything. And he confessed in painstaking detail for hours. The confession is like 250 pages long. Oh, and um, it's painstaking detail to every single murder. He only asked for coffee and cigarettes and remained in the demeanor of someone who was merely recounting their unremarkable day at work. I would say he was cold, but that's not it. He just seems... He seems generally interested in talking to someone, like he's happy to be having a conversation, but he's not remorseful of what he had done. In all the research I have done, both for this podcast and simply because I have always been obsessed with true crime, so I have read voraciously about it like a psychopath, I have never encountered another interview like his. Even Bundy. And Bundy was a freaking robot. Bundy had cold, calculating, crazy eyes. Jeff looks like a shy, amiable, casual dude with no awareness that anything he did was wrong. It's very strange. But he knows that somebody wants to talk to him, so he's fine with it. Oh. It's a lot. Yeah. Because you listen to him talk, you're like, this guy isn't scary, but the words coming out of his mouth are definitely scary words. Yeah. Oh, I'll be interested to actually watch an interview with him. Yeah, it's a very weird paradox. So now that we know what we're in for with Jeff, let's see how he got to this point. And the best way to do that is to begin at the beginning. Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer was born on May 21st, 1960 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to Lionel and Joyce Dahmer, who I have a lot to say about later. But first, Leslie, why don't you tell us something about 1960? Okay. Woo! Well, so I picked out some children's shows during the 60s cool. that he might have watched. That's when he was a little little kid person. Little guy. Yeah. Um, little baby Dahmer. <laughs> little baby Jeff. <laughs> uh, so the Flintstones came out in 1960. Aw. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was later. That was like 1968. So he definitely I love Mr. Watched Rogers. That. The Jetsons was 1962. Oh. Uh, and then Leave It to Beaver, which had started a few years earlier. That was probably like a big family mm-hmm. uh, show to watch. Okay. Uh, bunch a lot of, of wholesome content. Yeah, absolutely. The toys that were big were like G.I. Joe's. Mm-hmm. They had Lego bricks. Uh, troll dolls were uh, made then. They had Dennis the Menace toys, uh, like matchbox cars. Uh, miniature doll houses with miniature golf courses attached. Oh, get out of here. They did not have dollhouse <laughs> golf courses. <laughs> and um, I put this in because I thought this was interesting, but Psycho was the second most popular movie that year. Ooh. Yeah. Um, I have received more than one request for us to do Ed Gein, who um, inspired Psycho. So that is on the way, you guys. Cool. Good ones. Thank you. So that's a little, <laughs> little taste of what the culture Jeff would have been immersed in. Um, he was a sweet and cute little baby. And let me make it clear, he was also a very good-looking adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I'm not here to lie. So the fact that he was able to get so many men to come back to his apartment totally checks out. Right. I know you and I would have probably been at the bar like, why are all the good ones gay? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's six foot tall, broad shoulders, blonde hair, blue eyes, and um, he is kind of, is strong. He works out okay. because, you know, you can't do crazy shit like pull people apart if you have no upper body strength. So. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, no, he's a guy that people would be like, that's a good looking dude. I want to talk to him. Just to give you that image. I'll post pictures of him, pictures where he looks like a total tool and pictures where he looks like a... Good looking dude. Mm-hmm. There's both. 
<laughs> um, a word about his mother, Joyce, before we proceed. I had to text Leslie for like a full half an hour about this woman earlier because the way she is treated by the media enrages me. Tell us about it, Holly. Most reports um, on Jeff's youth are taken from his father's book. Lionel and Joyce, however, divorced when Jeff was um, 17. And Joyce has her own account of everything. But publishers had no interest in that. They refused to publish Joyce's book because they said they already had his father's opinion, and that was enough. Hmm. Fuck you and the penis you wrote in on. I can't handle that because they are going to be very different. They had a very contentious relationship, and if you read retellings of Jeff's childhood, they all refer to Joyce as a flighty hypochondriac given to mood swings and irrational fits of anger. But I, I, I have to, and I want you to consider the source. And I'm not going to do Joyce dirty at all. I'm, I'm only going to report the facts. But even that, I don't know. Some of my facts might be skewed by the fact that the source is Lionel Dahmer. Um, she had her issues for sure. Absolutely. But the lens through which she is seen is more than a little cloudy. Later in life, she went on to be a therapist who works in a clinic with AIDS patients in the late 80s and early 90s, which was not something people were comfortable doing. Like, that was a hard job then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and she was very outspoken and, um, and intelligent. And the interview that I watched with Joyce was, I was very surprised at how she had been portrayed because I expected her to be this, like, hysterical housewife. And that's, she was, like, a very independent, successful, accomplished, charitable woman. Oh, that's so unfortunate that. Yeah, I mean, she tough. was willing to talk about it then and they didn't she, want she it. She was, but they, nobody wanted to hear it. So, yeah, sad. She um, has died since then, so we will never hear her book, which I'm sad about because I totally would have read it. Yeah. Through Joyce's pregnancy, um, she had a pretty tough time. She was very nauseous a lot, and she had to take medication for extreme nausea, so it's no wonder that Jeff wasn't born with flippers, but we'll get into that in episode two. (laughs) I I don't remember. I don't know when the the thalidomide thing happened. It might have been earlier than that, but I always, when they say, like, ladies took a lot of nausea meds while they were pregnant and then their kid was weird. I'm always like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff was born healthy and happy. It is generally believed that Lionel and Joyce doted on their son, even though their marriage was pretty tense. Joyce rigorously filled out a baby book and you can see pictures of it. It's like she documented every little thing. So it's pretty obvious that she loved her son, but she was given to bouts of depression that sometimes left her bed bound. Um, But little Jeff was well cared for. By the time Jeff had turned three, the family had relocated to Iowa, where Lionel was getting his PhD in chemistry. Because of this, Lionel wasn't around much and became increasingly distant, especially from Joyce. Lionel admits in his book that he was not there for Jeff much, as he was more busy with work and his education. Uh, Lots of people have absentee dads, though, and they don't go on to murder 17 men. True. (laughs) But it is a factor in Jeff's upbringing, and therefore, we will note it. Okay. There are a lot of mentions of how, like, icy Lionel was and how he wasn't around a lot, and so Jeff didn't really have as much of a father figure. But then again, he's very prominent in this story because he told it. (laughs) Exactly. It's rough. (laughs) I know. It's rough to sort through and be like, I can't take all these facts out, but I know they've been cherry-picked. Right. Exactly. So when Jeff was four, he was outside one weekend with his father, who was cleaning up the remains of a couple dead rodents from under the porch. You know. (gasps) Standard weekend. (laughs) (laughs) 
Lionel collected the bones in a can, and Jeff was delighted at the tinkling sounds they made when the bone hit the metal. And so Lionel let him keep this old can of rat bones as a toy. Oh my god, that's such a... Guys are so weird. Cute. (laughs) They, his family just was fine with this, and they lovingly called them Jeff's fiddlesticks. Ew. (laughs) Okay, I'm weird. My kids are weird. We have bones. We have buried uh, birds that the cat left us in the backyard and come back months later for the bones. We clean them and display them like we're a little natural history museum. I made jewelry out of them. But my hackles are always up a little bit at this point in the story because the general response to a little kid seeing bones is, oh, God, that's why he's a serial killer. (laughs) And it's certainly not. It's okay to be a weirdo. It's cool. But do not give a child filthy under the porch bones as a rattle. (laughs) That is admittedly gross and unwise. Yes. I know. The line between, like, Cool science and weird serial killer prelude is very blurry in the story. (laughs) Jeff enters kindergarten at five years old, standard time to enter kindergarten, and his family reports that he is a shy child. At this time, Joyce has fallen pregnant with her second son, and Jeff's teacher tells uh, her and Lionel that he is feeling neglected because of the new upcoming baby. Not uncommon. They're prepping for a new baby. Their existing child is kind of like, what about me? That's a thing. So... Lionel and Joyce decide to kind of involve Jeff into this exciting time by letting him choose a name for his baby brother. He chooses to name him David, which is impressive because my son would want me to name a baby Mario Creeper Poop Face Trampoline III. (laughs) You know that this is true. It's so true. (laughs) David has since changed his name. He wasn't real thrilled about this whole situation later in life. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, he's a totally normal dude with a wife, a good job, and two kids. We're going to leave him alone. Okay. He does not want people to talk about him or to him. I get it. I wouldn't either. What did he change his name to? I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Which, good for him. Yeah. My shit would have been like, you need to witness protection me. I don't want any part of any of this. Because you're blacklisted for life if that's your brother. His mother was. Joyce was taken off. um, She was like the public face of the AIDS um, hospice that she worked for and they're like you can't do any public events anymore wow yeah oh that's so sad yeah it would totally ruin your life and when mm-hmm. and when Jeff was apprehended David was 25 or so he was like an adult mm. so he would have been aware enough to be like no 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 I gotta be somebody else now fun fact about kids naming their siblings in Doug the cartoon show oh, my kids love that now I introduced them to oh, it good uh, Doug Gets Doug and his sister get to name their new baby uh, brother that's coming in to the world, and they name him Dirt Bike. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, that's what a kid would name mm-hmm. another kid. David. Well, they were like they were like older. Yeah, Doug's and they like were a, joking like about it, and the mom came home and was just like, "I named it Dirt Bike, just like you and your sister said." And they were like, "Really?" <laughs> Mario poop face trampoline. Yeah, Dirt Bike funny. <laughs> So, you know, that was that was actually pretty pretty conservative on the brother naming. <laughs> uh, shortly after David's arrival into the world, Jeff suffers a painful hernia in his scrotum. Ooh. <laughs> I did not know that that was even possible. If I misread it, good, because that's awful. Say it again. You want me to say scrotum her- hernia again? Yeah. Uh, well, you just said it. I know. That's yeah. 
what I read. You've Me? never heard of that? In your scrotum? Yeah. No. Mm. What, is, what even herniates? You got stuff to herniate there. Oh, God. Ouch. Can ladies get a vagina hernia? Mm, I don't think so. Probably just right next to the, the groin. I did not look that up. I never want one. I don't even want to know what what is. Oh, Jesus Christ. Whew. Well... Jeff had pretty invasive surgery that had him put out of commission for a little while. And the whole ordeal was painful and he had to like not move a lot. And many people speculate that it could have been responsible for Jeff's sexual issues later in life. Oh, yeah. I don't know that it is, but I it certainly didn't help. And now we all know that you can herniate your balls. So, mm-hmm. so that's fun. Yeah. So happy good like- night. <laughs> oh. Oh, oh God. I, yeah, I didn't look that up too much. <laughs> I didn't want to. I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to see the severed head, hands, and penis today. So <laughs> We're good. You, we'll was, give you a pass. I was fine. <laughs> According to Lionel Dahmer's book, After the Surgery, Jeff was a changed kid. He was no longer the happy child he had been. His rusty can of rat bones no longer brought the joy they used to. <laughs> he was also very withdrawn in school. So he just became like he was like a happy, fun, playful kid. And then he was just serious and shy and kind of afraid of the world. What age was this? Six. Okay. I imagine like fucking taint trauma is horrible. Yeah. He's so young. I know. Awful. (sighs) Also, at that point in time, Joyce and Lionel's marriage was um, beginning to show cracks. Joyce became kind of angry and desperate for attention. Again, the only source is her husband. Um, because She said that was because that he rarely saw her and um, she was raising the two boys on her own, which is frustrating, of course. Lionel was also cold and resolute, going to work, church, and back home. Religion was a huge part of the Dahmer household. They were very strict Christians. And Lionel was not shy about saying openly that he believed homosexuality was a sin. And also, like, um, an obstacle that you could surmount. He was like, you can get over it if you pray hard enough and try hard enough. Of course. Yeah, sure you can. Uh, And here's where we can see a little bit of similarity between Jeff and Joshua Komisarjevsky of the Cheshire Home Invasion murders. Both of them were indoctrinated early in life with extreme restrictive religious beliefs. Both of them had like kind of an, an incident where, you know, Jeff is actually homosexual, but Josh Komisarjevsky had like a homosexual experience. So they both had that in their life. And it was really bad. And the way that conflicting thing, those conflicting things fucked with their head mm-hmm. went on to have both of them act out in an extremely violent fashion. Mm-hmm. So that's don't do that to your kids. Please. Yeah, don't do it. Throughout Jeff's early childhood, he was described as a very shy boy who spent a lot of time alone and loved science, which is fine. You can be the cool shy kid that likes science. But that is... Um, one one thing that is for sure is that Lionel did pass down the science thing because he was a chemist or an um, – I don't know if that's exactly what his job was. He was a scientist, and he passed down his love of sciencey things to Jeff. And Jeff was always fascinated with how things work. And by things, I mean living things. Lionel taught Jeff how to suspend bugs in vials of chemicals for display, um, which you can actually just do with rubbing alcohol. I don't know what they use, but you can just do that. Ah, fun fact. (laughs) And Jeff had a large collection of bugs in jars. A little weird. Not yet, like, probably put that kid in the hospital weird. Right. I mean, I think that we all went to school with a kid that probably had bugs in his room. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Jeff always loved his dad, though, and looked up to him, and he wanted his attention, of course, like all kids do, and and doing these weird sciencey things got, like, a really positive reaction from his dad. So I'm sure mm-hmm. that that egged it on quite yep. a bit. Instant gratification. Absolutely. Yeah, which we're going to get to. <laughs> but I think we can all see where this is going, and it's right down the McDonald triad ladder. Going into first grade, Lionel and Joyce noticed how withdrawn and isolated Jeff had become. He did, however, have one little boy that he seemed to kind of like sometimes. And he loved his teacher, his first grade teacher. One day, Jeff brought his teacher a tadpole he had caught. Also, like, a cute thing. Like, to a six-year-old boy, that is treasure. Yes. And they gave it to you. That's, oh. like, just a, my son is six, and I imagine if he, like, brought me a tadpole in a cup, I'd be like, this is the highest honor. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, the teacher took this slimy little gift and later in the day, re-gifted it to another little boy. What a bitch. <gasps> Isn't that awful? She was like, here, you can have this. That's horrible. Put it in the lake after school or something. Like, give it to someone on your off time. Don't just, like, hand off the gift that this kid gave you to another little boy in his class who was the little boy he was friends with. <laughs> Horrible. He had like one acquaintance and it just so happened that that's the kid that she gave this tadpole to. And on their way out of school that day, he was like, look what Mrs. So-and-so gave me. And Jeff was like, what the fuck? It was not. And that went into a killing spree? No. no well, oh, not yet. Okay. Um, sort of. Jeff was heartbroken and furious. That afternoon after he got home, he snuck over to this little boy's house because he was like a neighborhood kid, went into the garage poured motor oil all over the surface of like the shallow puddle that this whatever the little cup or whatever this tadpole was in and lit it on fire no yes okay so he is one is he one year older than your son no he's the same age same age i could not picture flynn doing this right now no no like even coming up with that thought just like i'm gonna sneak out and light a tadpole on fire. Never. I mean, I could see him saying, I'll light a tadpole on fire. <laughs> he would not. But. <laughs> no. I, I, that's exactly. Like, imagine, like, I have my little blonde son looks kind of similar to the, like, a similar facsimile to what you would have been seeing with Dahmer at that age. Sneaking away to a little boy's house and murdering a tadpole in his garage. No. Your son would have walked right up to the teacher and oh, he had would have. words with her. <laughs> oh, he would have. He would have cried a lot, too, yeah. and made her feel like trash. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. He's so good at it. I know. So much smarter. Emotionally manipulate people who hurt you. Don't kill their pets. Yes. Put that on a button. Yeah. <laughs> That's healthy. Oh, God. Yeah, so he dumped oil on it, lit it on fire, and then walked away like an 80s villain with an explosion behind him. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. so crazy. Um, after that incident, Jeff didn't seem to have much interest in anything social for a while. And you wouldn't. Mm-mm. You're done having friends now. That's crazy. Um, and in 1968, just one short year later, the Dahmers moved yet again to Bath, Ohio. Jeff did not make friends at his new school. He didn't even try. 
He kept to himself, and despite what we would later discover to be a relatively high IQ, he made very mediocre grades, and this is a theme for him. He's super smart, but he doesn't try. What Jeff lacked in school interest, however, he made up for in the home science he was doing, which he's getting a lot of positive reinforcement for. Jeff had moved on from dragonflies and spiders to what is basically carrion. Jeff would pick up animals he found dead in the woods and practice taking them apart and putting them back together like puzzles. Again, me too, Jeff. It's fine. I get a certain level of science weirdness behavior, but this is weirder and gets progressively worse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. I don't know what else to say, but yep. I know. At age 11, Jeff and his family were sitting around the dinner table eating a roast chicken when Jeff asked his father what would happen if they were to put chicken bones in bleach. And his father, the scientist, was, of course, delighted. Okay, my kids would know that bleach is not the ideal medium for whitening bones because it's caustic effects. The bones become brittle and they crumble. And what you really want to use is peroxide, but again, I digress. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Fun facts with Holly. Ooh, a theme song. I love it. So Lionel gleefully accepts and shows Jeff how to process and preserve bones. And they use bleach. I can't. I'm done. Um, the pair practiced on animals that turned up dead in the road and in the woods. Where the fuck did they live? An animal graveyard? There's just animal bodies everywhere? Yeah, it's Ohio. All right. So. <laughs> All the animals die outside and, like, just hang out in Ohio. Great. Lionel would show Jeff how to place an animal in bleach or acid so that, like, kind of acid you could get at a drugstore to dissolve the remaining flesh on bones and connective tissue so that they would be left just with bones, what he does later in life with people, um, so he could then articulate the bones. Again, you really want a dermestid beetle if you're deflushing anything. Well, a lot of dermestid beetles because chemicals can do more harm than good. God, for a scientist, he was not very good at preserving bones. Maybe he was just letting his son run some tests. Like, you asked a question. No, he was instructional because he went and did this with him and was like, here's how you do it. Oh, okay. I was just, I was thinking, like, what would happen if we put them in bleach? Like, and he was like, let's see so you can learn. Yeah, that's a better way to go about it. Not exactly how they would have been. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's a much better way of learning, but, you know. No, he was like, here's what's really good for getting flesh off bones. Okay. (laughs) Um... Anyway, I just can't help myself sometimes. Clearly, I would be an excellent murderer, and you should all be a little bit terrified of me. I I am terrified of you. (laughs) I would never kill anybody, but, you know, I'd be good at it. Whatever. That's Um, what a killer would say. So I guess we'll never know. (laughs) No one can see our (laughs) eye contact. (laughs) It is a shame because that was really good. Maybe we'll start videoing these, putting them on YouTube. (laughs) It was at this time that Jeff's little science experiments went from a weird hobby to a macabre obsession. This is also around the time that Jeff starts drinking. Eleven? You are surely screaming at me? Well, in some sources, it's ten. So take the extra year and calm down. But yes, as Jeff entered puberty, which his father calls puberty. Aw, adorable. I was like, you're so dumb. (laughs) Anyway, as Jeff entered puberty, his mind started to turn on him. Joyce and Lionel's marriage was fraught, which made the house an extremely tense place to be. Their arguments had become shouting matches. In fact, Joyce was so monumentally unhappy that at this point in time, she attempts suicide by overdosing on tranquilizers. Mm. Yeah, this is not an easy situation for any child to be in, but I'm truly not sure how much Jeff and David knew. 
because Joyce was hospitalized for a time and then returned home and acted as though nothing had happened. Where was he getting the alcohol from? Does he it say? stole it or it was in the house? Okay. Yeah. Which is interesting because you said that they're very Christian too, right? The father was at least. Yeah, but I don't know that that means they like lead by example. Maybe not. They're always going on about how crazy Joyce is. Maybe she liked a little scotch, scotchy scotch now and then. But he, I mean, like, he was crafty for what he was, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of it he stole. Yeah. So, yeah. Mom's hospitalized, then she comes back, and they act like everything's fine, which is a super healthy way to deal with all of that. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. That's what I would suggest. Absolutely. Um, Jeff was also, at this time, slowly discovering that he was gay, and all the while, he was immersed in the belief that gay was not only awful and wrong, but something, like I said, that you could overcome. Which has got to be very um, frustrating and confusing and frightening and sad and scare- uh, just scary for a kid. He's 10, 11 years old and like, I feel these things. They just come from the inside of me. But I'm told that they're punishable and inherently wrong and that if I work hard enough, they'll go away. But they don't seem to be something that will go away. Yeah, I know. It's so sad. Isn't that awful? It's like a really awful place for a kid to be in. The only thing that brought him joy was ripping apart animals. And so then he drank, oh, I did write it down. So then he drank anything he could steal. Between the ages of 10 and 15, Jeff spent all of his free time riding his bicycle around the neighborhood and picking up roadkill, which he would take back to his house, um, to his treehouse in the backyard and process all of it. He found cats and he would just like eviscerate them. Yeah, gross. And, um, And then save the bones in different like places and stuff. And one time he found a dog. I know you guys... You're going to hate him now because there's a dog, but it's a dead dog. He already finds it dead, but he cuts the head off, puts it on a stick, and sticks it in the ground outside of his treehouse. Why didn't anyone play with him? (laughs) Yeah. He seems like it's, oh, he also nailed the remaining body to a tree. Oh. These are welcoming things. I don't know why that feels worse. All of it feels. It all all feels terrible. Very Lord of the Flies, and I can't handle it. Yeah, that's what I was picturing. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's going on. In 1973, Jeff entered Revere High School. Puberty had firmly taken hold now, and Jeff could barely contain the urges he felt. Apparently, he was a frequent and furious masturbator, but, like, aren't all boys at that age? I would think so, <laughs> He's yeah. a freshman in high school. Yeah. That's, like, not, not anything where I would be like, oh, man, lock you up. Uh, I mean, like I said, I don't really see that. As a red flag. However, he had a very absentee father who admitted, Lionel admitted he wasn't around to talk him through this confusing time. He also admits to dealing with any of Jeff's problems or any of his acting out in a very cold and rational manner. So he would just discuss what he did wrong as if they were in a court of law and then what the consequences would be. Instead of doing like the normal dad thing and talking about like how he felt and how Jeff might feel and and why those things were happening. He was like, well, you've committed a misdemeanor and here's how we're going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Good dad, dadding. That's great. He recognized that Jeff was drinking, too, and that this was a problem, but he just, like, kind of let that happen. That's so weird. Isn't it? I know. It's very strange. He also says he recognized that at that point his son had become completely, totally socially inept. Sometimes he would even struggle to make eye contact. He figured this was something he would just grow out of. Guys, no. You do not grow out of that. If your kid loses all of their social ability, please send them to counseling or at least talk to your doctor. Be like, what was there is not there. I don't know what's going on. Help us make sense 
of our situation, <laughs> which they never did. Ugh. And of course, it's the seventies. People don't know as much as they know now. Mm-hmm. And also, like, um, don't come at me for the eye contact thing because that is a thing that evolves, not a thing that was always there. And um, I know that that is like a trigger for kids that are on the spectrum. A lot of times they have a hard time making eye contact. But that's not a thing that they, uh, to my knowledge, that you develop at 13 or 14. It's a no, thing that you've always had. had. Yeah. So um, I feel that that would be more cause for alarm if it just came out of nowhere. Yes. Like you're devolving. Yes. Okay. So I just had to make that clear because I know some people are going to be like, well, maybe like that's the thing that he had and maybe it is. But you know what? It's something you should have noticed if it didn't used to happen and now it does. Right. Yeah. And that's always, I mean, teenagers are, I feel, you know, I have two sons and I feel like. Yeah, you're in it right now. I am. And that age of like 12 or 13 to like 15 Mm -hmm. is that weird stage. Like you never know how long it's going to last, but they're distant. Yeah. They're a little distant and you start to worry mm-hmm. and all you want to know is like, do you have goals and ambitions? Just tell me that like yeah. you you feel like you have a purpose somewhere down right. the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just want to know you're going to be okay. Of course. And it's all right if you don't look at me today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But there is such a line between like I'm being a sullen teen and like mm-hmm. I can't socially interact with people anymore. Yeah. I just mm-hmm. can't do it and so I don't. Right. I just I I feel as though there were red flags that went ignored. I mean, there yeah. obviously are, but I just think that 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 is one of them. If my mm-hmm. kid suddenly didn't know how to talk to anybody, I'd be like, "Okay, we got to deal with this." And there's and there's a couple connections, especially if the father said he sensed or was aware that he was drinking. Mm-hmm. It's know. also a trauma thing. Like sometimes kids socially will devolve when they've gone through like either sexual abuse mm-hmm. or physical abuse or a particularly dramatic situation, they, like, just will forget how to be. Right. Which he was clearly going through, especially with his parents and right. his mom com- and committing just, suicide and nobody wanting to talk about it and or just trying to the commit. turmoil of being a gay kid in that house. Yes. And just not being able to – they weren't – nobody was talking about their feelings is no. clearly what was happening. Oh, absolutely that's what was happening. Yeah. But, like – Right, that's a, that's another sign that it's like, well, you're traumatized. Some shit mm-hmm. happened to you. Like, what's going on? But no, they were like, he'll grow out of it. It's fine. It's not fine. That's what we're saying. <laughs> Jeff's high school career was unremarkable to the casual observer. He didn't have any real friends, but he coasted through his days. Jeff was an avid tennis player and played clarinet in the school band. His grades were completely mediocre, and he was said to be polite to teachers and staff. So that is somebody who disappears into a crowd real easy. By 15 years old, though, Jeff had begun to fantasize about dead bodies. I guess girls didn't do anything for him and live boys weren't an option, so dead boys were the leap that his brain made. Oh. hmm He was also showing up to school flagrantly drunk. Jeff would sit in the parking lot and drink beers in his off time. He kept hard liquor in his locker and would go so far as to pull out his scotch in class. He would just sit in class, drink some scotch. You know, real civilized. Mm. Clinking his drink, like right? One the ice, ice cubes. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the spherical ones, so yeah. it melts slower. <laughs> his teachers feel extremely chilled to me. Yeah, right. Wow. But it was the seventies, and for better or for worse, things were a lot looser back then. And teachers were probably like, "Yeah, I guess I'll have one too." Can I, yeah, can I maybe have some of that? Yeah, thanks, bud. Um, 
when his his peers would ask him what he was drinking, Jeff would always just respond, my medicine. Ew. I know. I know. His mind was tormented with violent sexual fantasies because he does admit that at this point in his life, it was like overwhelming the amount of like violent fantasies he had. They just consumed him all the time. And the thought of who he is was fundamentally and sinfully wrong in his brain and his family's eyes. And um, a choice that he could just, they thought he could just opt out of that. So in a way, the alcohol probably was, in his mind, like medicine. Because mm-hmm. he was definitely what you would call self-medicating with it. It would cloud his brain until he couldn't really focus on anything. Yep. But teenage alcoholism does not come without a price. And I need to stress that that's what we're dealing with. He's an alcoholic, not Mm -hmm. a kid that is randomly acting out. If you're drinking through the entire school day, you're not an alcohol hobbyist. You have graduated to full professional. Yeah. So why don't, Leslie, why don't you tell us uh, some some facts about um, how alcohol, alcoholism, I should say, because there's a difference, (laughs) can affect um, a developing like teenager brain. Well, Holly, results have shown that heavy alcohol abuse in adolescents adversely affects brain development and maturation, causing brain damage, structural alterations, and cognitive deficits. No good. (laughs) No good. Um, So here are some of the signs, um, you know, if if your child is drinking, if you're not sure and you want. Um, and these are all signs of basically what he was going through okay. at this level. Um, lowered inhibitions, poor concentration, okay. slow reflexes, slow reaction to time, reduced coordination, slower brain activity, sensations and perceptions that are less clear. So it's like fogginess. Uh, slurred speech, sleepiness, altered emotions poor vision, sleepiness, and disruption of sleeping patterns, increased urination production, um, which we all know when we drink. Yeah, man. Uh, (laughs) More blood flow to the skin surface. It's like, you know, you're getting flushed. flushed. Uh, Lower core body temperature. You're getting colder. Um, So it was when I was looking up these signs, again, they all kind of start off like a regular teenage boy. Right. And, and maybe girl, some of the things but... we just talked about, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like being kind of weird and not looking people in the eye. Maybe it's because you're fucking drunk. Right. And it's – so that's just if you're just starting to drink. Okay. So now imagine all those same symptoms if you are continually drinking and heavily drinking and now you're an alcoholic and as a kid, those symptoms just stay with you Ugh. most of the time. And one of them was uh, slower brain activity. So we all know this too. Well, most most of us will know this. Um, when you drink, you it just affects your brain. It affects how you it it just slows down your synapses. You know, all yep. everything firing your brain. It just slows it down. It's a depressant. So, yes. Um, so as a kid, at a, as an adolescent, our their brains aren't fully formed yet. Right. Um, it's They're not formed until we're like 25 or 30 years old. Yep. It's much older than most people thought. Oh, I know. This day. is crazy. Yeah. So at that age, if our brains aren't fully formed yet and we're slowing down the brain's um, responses daily. Yep. Constantly, like by minute, mm-hmm. basically hourly, uh, it's it's definitely going to cause some development problems, right? Um, and it's just going to stop certain developments from happening. 
I always like to use the egg as the example because people love using eggs for brains. Oh, eggs and skulls are a big thing too. Anytime you're talking about a head, somebody's going to use an egg. Yes. (laughs) So if you think of our brains like eggs, then imagine an adult brain is a hard-boiled egg taken out and cooled with the yolk fully cooked, right? It's like fully hard. Delicious. A teenager. Uh, Not delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Yum. Great. <laughs> Throw a little salt in that baby and it's it's good to go. Oh, I do love a hard-boiled egg. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> okay. A teenager's brain is still boiling in the water. <laughs> if you turn the burner off or take it out too soon, the yolk might be a little too soft and even a little runny. Ew, runny. Yeah, it's still a little runny. So heavy alcohol abuse in adolescence can turn is basically turning that burner off too soon. So you just keep your runny-ass egg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bad. Causing it to not fully harden or form. And you know, I'm done with the eggs now. But, all right, so we've talked about this before, like frontal lobe injuries. Ugh, things like that, yes. Right? So in the brain, the frontal lobes, which includes the prefrontal cortex, is in charge of making sure that everything in the brain is running smoothly. And it's not only working, but working together. Uh, The prefrontal cortex is often called the executive function, so it's like the CEO of the brain. It's a manager. Mm -hmm. It it includes memory, attention, uh, flexibility, planning, and problem solving. It's where we can consider past events and experiences to make better choices in our present and future. It also affects things like holding conversations, reasoning, self-monitoring, and time management. That all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, since this part of the brain is not fully developed till our mid-20s, mm-hmm. so other parts of the brain are starting to become developed, especially mm-hmm. at his age now, which would be we're around 14, 15. Um, some of those parts in his other areas are getting developed, but that's going to be that frontal lobe is going to be the last part that's developed. That is why convicting a teenager of a murder as an adult is such a tricky topic. Yes. Because people are like, well, they have the thought process to understand their actions, but they don't really. Mm-hmm. They don't have that permanence of action. And like you're saying, it's all about decision-making and weighing consequences and stuff. And it's it's not there. So it's very difficult to say, like, we're going to punish you as an adult when your brain actually isn't formed to the level it would be if you were one. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and if you add um, alcohol to that, right, that's just going to make your decision makings worse. Or, I mean, it, or makes, I mean, it keeps you in that state even as an adult. Yes. Mm-hmm. So again, this is why. I mean, we always say it like teenagers, children, they just think they're invincible. Yeah. This is why. Mm-hmm. This it, because they're not fully developed yet in in that area. They don't have um, fully formed reasoning and risk thoughts you know they're not oh, no looking they're at not risk averse at all yeah. they're like oh I'm never gonna fail mm-hmm. <laughs> um and also their reasoning isn't quite there either I mean have you ever <laughs> tried to reason with a teenager or a five-year-old mm-hmm. like there's just no point in re- reasoning <laughs> nope <laughs> no points at all um so again adding the alcohol to it is just it it's just slowing down everything. And if you continue to abuse alcohol, you're just damaging your brain growth and development. And now also add that to his other trauma that yeah. was happening at home, like just his just the mental and behavioral issues he was having because of his family issues. Like mm-hmm. that can cause problems on its own. And you put those two together. 
and it could really stunt some yeah. development issues or development growth. So then, la- so lasting effects of like teenage alcoholism. I'm not talking about like a couple drinks. I'm talking about yeah. like prolonged abuse of alcohol can be kind of summed up in the fact that your brain goes into like in a state of arrested development. So it doesn't hit that fully hard boiled mm-hmm. phase. It kind of yeah. stays yoky. One of the things that my mom used to tell me this too. She so my mom works with uh, alcohol and drug addicts and they're adults. Um, right, and she always told me that an alcoholic, a lot of times when they start drinking, when they become an alcoholic, they kind of stunt their growth at that age. Okay. A lot. Interesting. Yeah. Um, in drug addicts too, you you kind of stunt yourself. You from, stay where you start? Yeah. Wow. And, um, okay. And so that always stuck with me as a kid. And, you know, that was one of my, like, growing up, knowing knowing that and being, you know, I'd I I did things, but we I, all did things. It's fine, but it was still in my head. Like I don't, I don't ever want to stunt my growth. Yeah. Well, he definitely did. Yeah. So I probably have some more things to say if they pop up. I will, but we we also have like yeah. a full clinical breakdown of the things that some people think is wrong with Jeff mm-hmm. and and how he was diagnosed and misdiagnosed um, after he was arrested that we're going to get into next time. So cool. you can add them then. Okay. Thank you for that. So a strange byproduct of all this liquid courage was that Jeff was also um, had developed a reputation as a class clown, as he would frequently do ridiculous things in the hallways and lunchroom to get a laugh. Super funny things like faking seizures, making animal noises, and mocking his mother's friend who had cerebral, cerebral palsy. That's a hard one for me to pronounce, and I've had to say it several times. High school is a mean time. So the kids ate up this nonsense. They thought it was hilarious, and referred to anyone who, like, did something crazy or outlandish or acted like an idiot as doing a dumber. Oh, my gosh. Huh? Oh, Jeff, you're such a card. If you'd like to see this on full display in a very unsettling manner, you can watch the film My Friend Dahmer, starring a Disney kid that'll freak parents out real hard. Um, if your kid ever watched Austin and Allie, that lovely little blonde boy that played the guitar is, is teenage Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> Oh, I have no idea. It was originally a graphic novel. You can still get that one if you want. Um, It's apparently really interesting and um, deals with his, like, younger life. Oh, wow. So, yeah, check it out. Let us know. We can talk about it. Oh, so that's another thing that just sparked. Get it. A memory. So he's obviously very distant generally, but or normally, but now he's also acting like this class clown. Yeah. Obviously, alcohol can do that. It can. Exactly. It excites you. It's like uh, it. Liquid for, courage. Yeah. And especially for children, it initially, it just, it really does excite and get you a little bit more amped. It's not going to really be a depressor yet. Right. Till later on effects. Okay. Well, that he definitely did. Like he was had the, the lowered impulse controls to be like, I'm just going to mm-hmm. do dumb shit for a laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that it's pretty it common. It was probably helping him interact with people. He was probably yeah. finding that as a way of like, oh, this is helping me be a little bit more normal. For sure. There were some people that talked to him and they thought that what he did was like funny and he had kind of like a weird high school cult following where people were like, that guy's nuts and hilarious. We should talk to him. He drinks whiskey in class. He drinks scotch in class. Yeah. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. That would go over well nowadays. <laughs> no good. So now it's 1977, which is Jeff's senior year in high school. And he was thinking about killing people nearly all the time. 
He was admittedly completely consumed by these thoughts. Joyce and Lionel had briefly gone to counseling in a last-ditch effort to save their marriage, but after Joyce admitted to having a brief affair, the two decided to finally hand in the towel and begin the process of their divorce. They told the boys that it was mutual and amicable, their divorce. They're like, we both agreed. We're just getting divorced. That's It's all right. Nobody's mad. But by this time, Jeff had become a serious alcoholic, the kind that needs a drink when they wake up in the morning just to make it through the day without getting sick. Mm. So that's next level. And he was just 17. And as Leslie shared with us, this is not a good time for a developing brain to be constantly drenched in alcohol. As the year ticked from 1977 to 1978, a lot of things began to change. Leslie, can you give us a little info about 1978, the year that Jeff would become a technical adult? Yeah, so I basically gave facts of what I think Jeff would be interested in. And here they are. Dudes. Davy Jones. Yeah, maybe. Bobby Sherman. I don't don't know who that is. is. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody does. Okay. John Travolta. Oh. Sean Cassidy. Okay. David Cassidy. All the Cassidys. Uh, Ralph Cassidy. (laughs) Jimmy Cassidy. (laughs) Hercules Cassidy. (laughs) Those last three are fake. And he liked Tammy Cassidy. Who knows? (laughs) You never know. Uh, Donny Osmond and Scott Baio. Okay, Mm. Scott Baio. You big, crazy mm. Republican, you. <laughs> I know. Uh, he did not age well for us. No, he did not. <laughs> he started out so strong. I know. Oh, man. Chachi. And Greece was all over the billboards Greece that year. is the word. <laughs> oh, Travolta. So those, those would have, that would have been some fun stuff for yeah. Jeff to be a high school senior, too. That just gives you kind of the atmosphere that he would have been – in very disco-y. Big year. Yeah. Big year. And Lionel moved out of the family home in early 1978 when the divorce was like wrapping up. It was kind of a lengthy divorce, not super lengthy, but I mean, they all take a little while. Um, And he set up residence in a local motel. Because Jeff was an adult at the time of the custody hearing, so the divorce didn't finalize until like mid-summer, but I guess they did custody earlier. I don't, the dates are not all I know is the divorce was finalized in July, but custody was dealt with before then for whatever reason. Oh, that makes sense because usually you would be separated. Mm-hmm. And so during that period, if they're not living together, then they would have to handle how they were going to see the kids. Okay. And then the divorce would come through. There you go. Um, Joyce got custody of David, but technically Jeff was an adult. Oh. So he was on his own. Okay. He was 18. So they were like, you don't, no one has custody of you. Okay. That feels so fucked up to me. (laughs) You're like a senior in high school and your parents are getting divorced and they're like, you're neither one of our problem. Well, I think it's more that he has a full right to choose. Right. That they don't have, the parents don't have a right to pick, like, you're going to be with us half the week and the other one half the week. You can decide where to go. He had to be with his mom because his dad was living in a motel room. Yeah. But but at that age, his brother would have had to. He could have stayed with his dad in the motel room if he wanted to. It gets way weirder. In May, Jeff graduated high school. And on the day of his graduation, a teacher caught Jeff sitting in the parking lot drinking beers. Jeff told his teacher that he had a lot of messed up stuff going on at home, and the guidance counselor already knew about all of it. The guidance counselor did not know about any of it. But he's a good liar. 
the teacher decided to keep their mouth shut and just left let Jeff graduate. Yeah. Which I I don't know, I might have too. Like well, this poor sad kid. And I'm not gonna interfere with his graduation. If they didn't, I mean, I guess if none of them suspected. It was like graduation day. Yeah. He was done. What are you gonna do? Make sure he doesn't get his diploma? I don't think I would have done that. Oh, that would have happened at my school. They would have yeah. done that. Yeah. Bru- oh, that's Catholic okay. school, that's man. That's tough. <laughs> Uh, but he, Jeff they want to keep you there longer so Ugh. that they could teach you more Catholic things. <laughs> no, thank you. After graduation, Joyce decides to take David and move to Chippewa Falls, which only makes me think of Adam's family values. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know. But she left Jeff alone in the house. Oh. The house that his whole family used to live in together as a family unit. His dad is off in a motel living his life not knowing anything because he's Mr. Distant. Mom moves to Chippewa Falls with the younger brother and they just leave him in the house. See, it's things like that where I wonder, I mean, is there any discussion of... Well, we'll find that out. Okay. But but I mean, either way, she she was like, bye, and just left him there. Right. I mean, but he wasn't invited? I don't oh, think so. That's what I mean. Like, there wasn't a discussion. Oh, of, between like, them? No information says that. They just say, Joyce took David and moved. Jeff right. was left in the house alone. Because I always wonder things like that where it's like, he's obviously so distant, so I could totally see a conversation of him being like, I well, I don't want to move. Here. I don't yeah. want to go. And then them fighting and her being like, well, then fine. Like, whatever. You're 18. Bye. Like probably live set in this up home that we still own, you eighteen year old. I would never trust my eighteen year old. Well, to maybe live in they a house. were just fed up with him. Maybe, but either way, it. I mean, like whatever the reason, it's a real weird choice. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, it is. It doesn't feel like All it wasn't. It wasn't screwy. like, and it, it also wasn't like we're going away for the summer. It was like we are moving forever. Yeah. Which is very different. If I was like, oh, well, they were like, stay in the house in the summer. You can get a job. And that's like, you're, you're 18, whatever. It doesn't matter. We'll be back in mm-hmm. September. It was, it was not that. Might have been the best thing she did, though. Um, no. <laughs> well, to get David maybe for away. for her. Yeah, maybe for, I think for David. For still saying David. Not so much for Jeff. But and it's also a real mind fuck to kind of be abandoned in the house your family used to live in as a cohesive unit, but now doesn't because it's totally broken apart. Yeah, I'm with you on that. That's tough. And now that Jeff was alone all the time, his mind was free to wander, which wasn't super healthy, as you might have guessed. He has firmly linked his sexual desires to acts of violence at this point, and he begins to think that he would like to knock someone unconscious and have sex with them. He's, like, obsessed with this thought. And... As he's obsessing over this thought, he notices a jogger in a local park while he's out on roadkill recovery and becomes obsessed with the idea of knocking this man out and raping him. So he stalks this guy for days, memorizes his route, and studies the time he is usually in the park. Finally, Jeff decides that the day has arrived and he prepares himself, hiding in the bushes on a discreet part of the trail and plans to knock him out and rape him. But, as luck would have it for that jogger, that day... He never showed up. It was probably the only thing that saved that poor man's life. But Jeff was at a boiling point. He was obsessed over this whole situation. He wanted violence, he wanted sex, and he wanted control. And now that there was no one to stop him, obviously something crazy is going to happen. Jeff committed his first murder just three short weeks after his graduation. So this jogger incident happened like right away. And then within three weeks, he actually killed somebody. Wow. There was no one to stop him. There was no one watching him. He was alone. 
I, I can't blame that on them. That's not their fault. They weren't like, he'll probably kill somebody. Bye. But still, like, that is, is hospitable for horrible things to happen. Mm-hmm. Leaving him alone was definitely a terrible idea, and he got scary real, real fast. On June 18th, Jeff picked up a hitchhiker named Stephen Mark Hicks, who was also 18. Jeff lured Stephen to his house on the pretext that the two could hand out, hang out together and get drunk. Hicks, who had been hitchhiking to a rock concert at Lockwood Corners, agreed to go back to Jeff's house. So either the concert was not that exciting, or Jeff was, like, really exciting. Or Stephen just really wanted to get drunk. All three are acceptable. Either way, Jeff was pumped. According to him, after several hours of drinking and listening to music, Stephen wanted to, quote, leave, and Jeff didn't want him to. Now, I have heard this interview. I've heard him describe this event. And he honestly claims time and time again that he just didn't want him to leave. He's like, I didn't want him to leave me. And the most rational thing in the world to do when you don't want someone to leave is to fucking kill him. (laughs) Right? That makes sense. Keeps him there. Yeah, we all don't want play dates to end, buddy, but maybe just ask for his number next time. Or take a picture. Yeah. Oh, no, don't. He does that. Well, you know, uh, before. He does it after, mostly. He does before and after, you know. You got to capture the whole thing. I want to take that back. Yeah. (laughs) Retraction. (laughs) (sighs) No, no. In response, Jeff bludgeoned Stephen to death with a 10-pound dumbbell because Jeff works out. Like I told you, you need some arms if you want to start knocking out full-grown adults. He later stated that he struck Stephen twice from behind with the dumbbell as Stephen sat upon a chair. When Stephen fell unconscious, Jeff said he strangled him to death with the bar of the dumbbell. So he would place, have like a hand on either side where the little weight part is and the bar would be pressed up against his windpipe and just pull. Yeah. Um, Then he stripped the clothes from Stephen's body before, this is a fun statement, masturbating as he stood above the corpse. Mm. A jolly image if ever I have conjured one up. The next morning, Jeff dissected Stephen's body in his basement. He later buried the remains in a shallow grave in his backyard before, several weeks later, digging up the remains and paring the flesh from the bones. He dissolved the flesh in acid, just like Daddy taught him, before flushing the solution down the toilet. He crushed the bones with a sledgehammer and scattered them in the woodland area behind the home. And that is the murder scene that Dr. Mann, who I worked, who I took a class with, worked on many years later. How they were able to tell anything from bone confetti in the woods amazes me. Wow. Isn't that nuts? It's wild. And I will read the excerpt from his book next week when we get around to all the forensics. It's crazy. Okay. <laughs> um, that was, is that Dr. Bob? That is. Bones with Bob. Yes, bare bones with Bob. He, <laughs> he got to work on Stephen Hicks, which is nuts. Six weeks after Jeff murders Stephen, Lionel returns home. He's back with his new fiance. Nice. Yeah. And he discovered that Jeff had been living there the whole time. He was pretty shocked to see that Joyce had just packed up and left him. Like, they did not discuss this first. So Lionel walks back into the house and he's like, what the fuck is going on? And mostly because, yeah, that shit is absolutely insane and shocking. Lionel could see that Jeff didn't really have any plans for his future, and he was living kind of a slovenly, drunken life. So that August, he helped Jeff enroll at Ohio State University. OSU. Yeah, they're not super proud of him. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. They don't keep him for long. Uh, He was hoping to major in business because he's ever shown a single second of interest in business. I, th- I thought well, it'd be like, well, you want to study science or anatomy. No, he's like, I'm going to study business. Well, he's kind of creating a little business. <laughs> yes, that's one way of putting it. 
Jeff spent just one term at Ohio State, and it was completely unproductive, largely because of his persistent alcohol abuse throughout the majority of the term. He received failing grades in Introduction to Anthropology, Classic Civilizations, and Administrative Science. The only course Jeff was successful at was riflery, having received a B-minus grade, which is hilarious because, number one, why is that a college course? Uh, Just an extracurricular. Nope, he got a grade. That was a real class. Regular. Well, yeah, I know, but that's what I'm saying. It's an extra Uh, word. He got a B minus. But it's also hilarious because while he was a heinous murderer, he never used a gun. (laughs) I got an A plus in archery in college. Well, don't (laughs) kill people with arrows and you can keep that trend going. But I could. (laughs) Good. Oh, I really can't. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. We'll let you have it. Thank you. Jeff's overall GPA was 0.45, which you really have to try for. You can't even casually fail that hard. No. I know. You have to like actively try to fail to have your GPA be a 0.45. That is so hard. Yeah, I know. You had to only go shoot guns. That was your only thing you did. That's as hard as trying to get above a (laughs) 3.5. Which I have a 4.0 right now. Good job. Whatever. Um, (laughs) Just saying. Um, On one occasion, Lionel paid a a surprise visit to his son, only to find his room strewn with empty liquor bottles. Despite his father having paid in advance for the second term, Jeff dropped out of Ohio State after just three months. Probably so the better for them. Did he live on campus? Yeah. Oh, who was his dorm mate? No idea. Somebody who didn't mind a drunk who did nothing ever, I guess? Yeah. Or someone who was never in their room, maybe? That's possible. Hmm. I don't know. In January of 1979, Lionel decides that the best way for Jeff to clean up his act is to enlist in the United States Army, and so he did. Jeff trained as a medical specialist at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. Maybe it should have been Fort Hood. Maybe he would have never come back then. Maybe. Mm-hmm. A medical specialist. God, that is scary. That just proves that you have no idea who is working on you in an emergency. You know who that person is. It could be a kind and compassionate genius. It could be Jeffrey Dahmer. Who's to say? Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. On July 13th, 1979, he was stationed in Baumholder, West Germany, where he received, uh, where he served as a combat medic in the 2nd Battalion, 68th Armored Regiment, 8th Infantry Division. So now he has medical knowledge. According to published reports, in Jeff's first year of service, he was a, quote, average or slightly above average soldier. Two soldiers actually attest to have been raped by Jeff while in the army. One stated in 2010 that Jeff had repeatedly raped him over a 17-month period while they were both stationed at Baumholder, while another soldier believes Jeff drugged and raped him inside an armored personal carrier in 1979. But we are all too familiar with how the armed forces deal with rape. Yeah. Not well. Actually, just not at all. Not. Mm Mm-hmm. And these fit Jeff's M.O. because later in life, we'll see in the second half that he goes on to, um, he likes to drug people before he does stuff to them. Makes sense, yeah. He likes, like, sleeping pills. They found in his bedroom closet chloroform and ether, which you could buy at the drugstore back then. hmm In the 90s. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Because of his rampant alcohol abuse, Jeff's military performance deteriorated, and in March of 1981... 
when I was just a tiny baby. He was deemed unsuitable for military service and was later discharged from the army. He received an honorable discharge as his superiors did not believe that any problems Jeff had in the army would be applicable to civilian life. So Vanessa Guillen murdered while doing her job and having done nothing wrong. Jeffrey Dahmer honorably discharged. Fucking ridiculous. It's a cool world we live in, right? Yeah. Super cool. On March 24th, 1981, Jeff was sent back was sent to Fort Jackson, South Carolina for debriefing and provided with a plane ticket to travel anywhere in the country. Cuz that's what you get when you get an honorable discharge apparently. Jesus. Jeff later told police that he felt he could not return home to face his father, so he decided to travel to Miami Beach, Florida because he was tired of the cold. Uh-huh. And knew where the damn party was at. Nice try, Jeff. In Florida, Jeff found employment at a deli and rented a room at a nearby motel. Jeff spent most of his salary on booze and was soon evicted from the motel for non-payment. He initially slept on the beach for a little while while continuing to still work at the deli and drink his face off, but eventually all of that became too difficult to keep up with, and he called his father and asked him to return if he could return to Ohio in September of the same year. When he got back, things really began to take off. Mm. That is where we are going to leave it for tonight. Man, I was hoping when he went to Miami it was going to be like the birdcage. <laughs> Maybe if it was, the rest of it wouldn't have happened. It's been such a delight. Maybe. Became he, like a pool boy. But he would be like, I'm your pool boy. I have to choke you out a lot. Yeah. That's <laughs> not good. <laughs> Less fun. Or maybe he would have felt at home and like he could be himself and all would have been well. Yeah, except for the whole like he was really, really like feeling the violence. Just I know. He to- was too far gone yeah, at that point. Was, yeah. Maybe if he was 11 and he saw, he went to the birdcage situation, he would have been better off. Yeah. I was thinking, okay, so back younger, like freshman, sophomore yeah, year yeah. of high school, I would say, um, I was always interested in the quiet type, like the the one that seemed, like, because he was clearly smart. He just mm-hmm. didn't apply himself. He didn't try. And uh, and he was always thinking, thinking about murders, but he was thinking, you know. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I wonder if I sat in the back of the classroom, I would have been like, oh, Jeff, like, what's he thinking about? I said a hundred times I would have been his friend. I would, I absolutely would have. I at least would have been nice to him. I oh, would have yeah. talked to him. I would have sat with him in study hall. I probably would have, I mean, maybe Weird at kid some who point. likes skeletons? I would have been like, let me give you like some pointers. We can be buddies. Or I would have been like, tell me about the skeleton. I know. Yeah. Maybe not in high school. I was not as like fully accepting of my own weirdness when I was in high school. I just really wanted to be cute and normal. <laughs> yeah. No, I would have been normal and then let him be weird. Yeah. And I would have, yeah. That that's, tracks. Yeah. I mean, he would have had no, absolutely zero interest in speaking to either one of us at all. But yeah, I could see that. I, Which I mean, like, would have been, and then I would have Would have been even more attractive. Yeah, I would have totally <laughs> been there trying to crack jokes at him. Like, How's that scotch? Yeah. You look, you look cool. <laughs> I like it. You want an ice cube? The spherical kind? Yeah. Make it at home. Get it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's the first half of Dahmer. I know that it's like a lot of just background and God, next week is just going to be murder, 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 murder. Like it's wall to wall killing. 
So if you didn't get enough of it this week, you'll get a whole lot of it next week. But I really felt the need to um, – I, I feel like that backstory is required. Yeah. Like you want to know all that stuff. I didn't know any any of that. The only thing I, I knew and could picture is um, – which is really what you're going to talk about next week is when the police go into his The house. apartment. Yeah. yeah that's, so- I can picture that kitchen – Mm-hmm. I've seen that kitchen. I don't. I don't know if it was from pictures or other people like portraying it somewhere. But yeah, probably. There, I mean, the pictures are. There are yeah. a lot of the crime scene photos are available, and those Polaroids are not hard to find. They are graphic, though. Yeah. So if you guys are get like Google happy and you feel like you want to see them, I, I need you to realize what you're getting into. Basically, yeah. you're getting into like territory we haven't been into. They're going to be, like, way worse to look at than pictures of Elizabeth Short or, mm-hmm. like, ugh, I, I can't even think. I mean, like, the Richard Trenton Chase stuff, we didn't – I didn't post pictures of bodies, I don't think. So. This is wild because it's – there's so many – hearing his, about his childhood, there are so many, um, like, red flags or things that are – I can already correlate to, like, what's going on with yeah, him. Yeah, a lot of checkpoints. Um, like, you know – why he is having sex with just dead people versus like you know beforehand like all all of these different well, things. Well, he does actually and I bet you- has sex with them live and then oh, okay. kills them. Yeah. But then oh, he does okay. weird stuff afterwards too. Okay, but initially the first one wasn't like that. He had to no. Kill the first them. one wasn't yeah. like that. Um, it's just all of these things where I know it now, and I wonder if it's because of this case, like this specific case, like all of these facts, like how I can correlate yeah. the two it's because of this case and now you know all that knowledge is out there does that make sense yeah I'm, this I'm like case is stumbling. really a lot of people's gateway case mm-hmm. it's the one that you're like this is readily available and there's documentaries all over the place and there's so many major themes in this case mm-hmm. that come back time and time again like you were saying so a lot of people are like have Got their first mm-hmm. round of knowledge from or, it. Or I, I guess I mean for like psychologists. Yeah. Like just um, the knowledge of these, like this, like his his actions kind of solidify some other things maybe they were studying or researching. Uh, or- maybe he, mm, he's a fun psych case because, um, and we'll get into it next week. As crazy as they really want to make him, he's not. Well, no, I wouldn't say crazy, but here are, like, these issues that yeah. can lead yeah, yeah, yeah. to that, mm-hmm. you know. He's sane, but here are the problems. Yeah, Kemper's really the one who unlocks that okay. for the world. Okay. Um, but he's less known, so you wouldn't know that as much. Right. Like, not, and not, and me not until they made Mindhunter, and then he was a big deal. But he's he's up there. He's one okay. of those one of those like signpost cases. Like if you if you go, oh, I'm interested in serial killers. People will be like, Dahmer, yes, Bundy, and like two others. That's that's yeah. who they think of right away. Manson, who never killed anybody, so we can't call him a serial killer. Stop it. Right? Yeah. Not one. Not a one person died by his actual hand. He's just a like manipulating crazy person. Right. So crazy. Totally crazy. Okay, but um, I, we're not going to sign off everything this week because we yeah. have a second half next week. Yeah. So um, I don't know if we want to toast anybody this uh, week. Yeah, I think we, we kind of have to do that. Yeah, that could be our sign off. Uh, did anybody give you particular – I want to toast Joyce. 
Mm-hmm. She made a lot of bad decisions. I'm not going to say she was like a, a perfect, wonderful mother, but she also did like love her son and have a lot of struggles on her own. And she was portrayed so badly and inaccurately in some cases that like you, there's no way to look at her with an honest eye. Yeah. So I'm sorry you went through that, Joyce. Yeah, we can toast to Joyce and um, and his kindergarten friend. Oh, that poor kid, man. Flaming tadpole. Yeah. So okay. cheers. Cheers. It was a good one this week. That is. That might ruin John's ears. <laughs> oh, no. We're sorry, John. <laughs> yeah. Um. So then come back next Tuesday uh, where you'll hear the second part of Jeffrey Jammer and we'll get to all of the murderers and the, his aftermath and his trial and stuff. And, uh, and yeah, so we'll see you then. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Looking around the kitchen, it became clear that Jeff just didn't have these guys for dinner. He had these guys for dinner. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.